Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Crypto.com, Nexo.io, and Level, and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Wednesday, December 9th, and today is a fun one. I'm joined by Ryan Selkis. Ryan is the founder and CEO of Masari, which is building a Bloomberg-style data portal for the crypto industry. Now, Ryan has always had a strong bias towards content. He actually ran Coindesk for a while back in the day. He was also the first person to break the Mt. Gox story. More recently, as part of Masari, he has put out a massive annual crypto thesis piece for the last three years at least, and these pieces are one of the best ways to get a full sense of the industry's past year and where it might be headed in the year to come. Well, 2020 is no different, and we have Ryan here to go through some of the highlights of his just-released crypto theses for 2020. There's way more in here than we can possibly get into, but the parts that we do get into, I know you're going to enjoy. So let's dive in. All right, Ryan, welcome back to The Breakdown. How are you doing, sir? Been too long, my friend. Surviving. Surviving 2020. (laughs) Made it through 2020. So, uh... Merry Christmas early because you just dropped a 130. What is the to, the final total? 134 pages when it was all nicely designed. Yeah, and everything. but that that includes like the table of content and the covers. And so, everything. well, so, I, I I like at least 120 pages. I go by I, know, I, go, pure I, go, content. I yeah. go on the Google I go on the Google Doc. Uh, yeah, my my master document is about 120. But yeah, exactly. And, and the way the way the way to think about it, you know, it's basically 121 theses because it's 2021. Um, so 121 um, kind of subsections, and you think about it as like almost like 12 10-page reports stapled together, with hopefully a little bit of segue in between. But yep, totally. And so, and so, I think that like what would be really fun to do is basically go through a bunch of the different sections. I mean, this is really like if you want to get a picture of what transpired this last year and some things to watch for next year, that's really what this report is all about. And it's going to be more comprehensive than anything anyone puts out. You know, there's going to be a lot of great end of the year content. I'm very confident saying this is uh, as or more comprehensive than anything else that will come out. And so you organize it into a bunch of different sections. You organize it into top 10 trends you're following. And really kind of, it feels like those trends follow throughout, uh, obviously. Um, But then you also have a section on top 10 people to watch. And I thought actually... Contrary to my first thought, at first I was going to go, let's go through the trends first, but I think actually we should go through the people to watch first, because it feels to me like a good way to kind of, uh, you know, get a glimpse of a lot of the other pieces that we'll talk about. So let's talk through the the top 10 people to watch that you put, why you put them on there. And then, um, and then we can, uh, we can go, uh, go kind of through some of the other themes. So let's dive in, I guess, uh, should we go honorable mentions on up or should we go one, one down to the bottom? What do you think? I, whatever you think is more dramatic, we can go honorable mentions. If let's we, do honorable. We, we, ma- let's do actually. Let's save. Let's save honorable mentions because we, then because it'll give too much away if we if we do that. But let's start with number ten, Danny Ryan. Go up the list, and then we'll we'll go from there. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, Vitalik uh, just crossed, I think, a million followers, and and he's he's short of Satoshi, probably the second most prominent developer and and, and pioneer in the industry. Um, but it's been uh, Danny Ryan from the Ethereum Foundation who's really taken this. Ethereum 2.0 roadmap and uh, and executed against it. Uh, and obviously with the launch of the beacon chain and, and this phase zero um, milestone that the uh, Ethereum community hit last week, 
um, he's uh, he's kind of an obvious, uh, and I don't think it's fair to call him under the radar pick, but um, but, but certainly someone that had a, a, a huge year this year. More importantly, as um, Ethereum 2.0 progresses, you know, we're just getting started in terms of seeing this you know, roadmap released and, and that migration come to fruition. So um, everybody will be keeping a close eye on him as, as kind of a proxy for uh, how the project is going and, and what speed uh, it's moving and whether they'll be able to hit some of these milestones. Um, as Danny goes and, and as the Ethereum developers go, so go uh, potentially some of the Ethereum competitors uh, in terms of their viability and, and attempt to siphon off some demand from Ethereum. Yeah, I think I, I'm excited to talk a little bit more about your sensibility around the ETH2 timeline. Uh, that's something I know you spend a lot of time on later, but um, let's move to number nine, Anonymous. Well, Satoshi's the original, uh, and I've loved for my my Anonymous folks because I, I tried to start anonymously and then obviously failed miserably at that with my pseudonym because uh, I became a public figure of sorts. Um, but uh, this summer, particularly with DeFi, the anonymous developers that forked many of the top DeFi projects and, and created some of these new emerging um, protocols made ungodly amounts of money in some cases, uh, in some cases legitimately. And, uh, and they were also responsible for some of the highest profile attacks on a number of, of DeFi protocols. So um, my sense is given the, the regulatory picture uh, that's evolving worldwide. Not only was this a year where you had a, a lot of you know, high-profile pro anonymous uh, figures like Chef Nomi uh, and the alphanumeric developers that were funded by the likes of you know Square from from um, uh, and and you know anonymous Lightning and Bitcoin Core developers. Um, but uh, I think going forward, it's going to be important to figure out how anonymous contributors can actually make their mark in the industry, have folks rely on their code or, or you know, take, them, take their code commit seriously because um, you might have to fade into the shadows to a certain extent, depending on what your, your jurisdiction looks like and what the rules are for developing crypto applications um, in, uh, in Europe versus the US versus China and, and everywhere in between. Yeah, I think this one is a super interesting pick. Um, I, you know, one of the things that I'm sure we'll talk about when we talk a little bit more about DeFi is uh, a sensibility that it seems like from reading your section that you share uh, that I've talked about a lot, which is DeFi as this pure play capitalist battleground. I mean, really one of the purest sort of open markets with every type of attack available, you know, possible, but happening at a speed that kind of dwarfs traditional markets. And when you look in that context, the sort of uh, anonymous actors are a key part of that in, in a lot of different ways. So I thought that was a really uh, interesting insight. Um, your next two uh, picks are, are kind of, or I guess it's three, but across two categories or two numbers are also kind of DeFi. So you have Hayden Adams and Rob Leshner in number eight and, uh, and Andre Cronier at number seven. I mean, this was the year of DeFi. Uh, and I think next year we'll determine whether that momentum was sustainable or whether DeFi runs into the buzzsaw that is the regulatory regime. Uh, and folks start to get a little bit skittish or, or we start to come down from, uh, from, from the cycle's highs. Um, I thought that it might have been over in September, right? And, and we could have been in for a longer winter. But, but what's happened in the last couple of months with the so-called blue chip DeFi assets, that's Yearn, Uniswap, Aave, 
compound, some of the others, um, has really been uh, insane in terms of the resurgence in price, the, the resurgence in volume and liquidity of these rallies and, and, and resurgences. Um, so I think uh, 2021, we're going to see if there's an actual bubble that materializes uh, across these uh, assets, or if we're going to kind of very quickly get into the, the methodical you know, builder phase of, of, of these different protocols. Too early to tell uh, one way or the other, but with Compound and, uh, and Uniswap, that being Hayden and, and Rob, I think the primary innovation and the thing that really set the market on fire this summer was the uh, popularization of DeFi you know, yield farming. And essentially, you know, the, the granting of governance tokens, which could ultimately accrue fees and, and capture value from these protocols, um, uh, was uh, was something that you know sparked, I'd say, a, a 10x, uh, you know, in some cases more than that, um, provisioning of liquidity that uh, actually makes these markets work at scale. And uh, I, I expect that's going to be almost a default funding mechanism and um, and community incentivization uh, mechanism going forward. And 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 that innovation in and of itself, I think, was important this year. Uh, Andre, you know, maybe. Uh, through fuel on that fire even further by releasing uh, the Wi-Fi token, you know, completely uh, without a pre-mine or, or you know, any real concern for for how he was going to be able to extract economics out of it. So it had this kind of immaculate conception, if you will, where um, it has uh, one of the most passionate uh, organic communities that's that's emerged outside of Bitcoin and Ethereum right now. Um, and I think when when I look at long-term value creation and the ability to you know kind of build and establish moats, it's usually around um, teams and, and protocols that have charismatic founders and um, and some type of immaculate launch where it's not just someone dumping on you on the other side like a like a venture capitalist. Uh, Andre's also just been building in hyperdrive, so uh, so I think he gets the nod for maybe the most prolific, productive uh, developer of the year. He's also on top of all that, he's introduced something that we've been talking about. I mean, you and I have probably had multiple conversations about it since like 2017, 2018, which is protocol MA. I mean, we're we're on five different DeFi mergers, I think, with Urine at this point. In like two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is now a category of thing that happens, right? And uh yes, yeah, so I I well, maybe we'll talk more about that too and we we get a little deeper. Uh okay, number six, Caitlin Long. Great choice, but but think talk me through your logic. Well, Caitlin, um, you know, I think she might have even been on Coindesk's list last year. Um and uh, you know, I've, I've known Caitlin for a long time. She's, she's fantastic. Um, her, I actually said at the end of last year's thesis, uh, in my like second to last, uh, section, I think I said something like now that I'm getting to the section, I kind of wish that Caitlin was included in this year. So this is almost, uh, in, in some respects, like a, a do-over, uh, from last year, but then more importantly, uh, we've started to see the fruit of, the Wyoming blockchain initiatives that Caitlin really seeded and spearheaded um, uh, get born. And, 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 and we, uh, I think, have a golden opportunity in the U.S. to, to have states copycat Wyoming and, and play kind of intra-U.S. regulatory arbitrage when it comes to 
uh, crypto jurisdictions as a counterbalance to, to what we've seen in the state of New York, which is completely you know, over the line in terms of, in terms of how cumbersome it is to, to abide by New York State um, Department of Financial Services regulations uh, and the bill license and all that. So I think um, you know, between the work uh, in Wyoming and then the introduction of, of two, I think maybe more than that now, but at least two um, licensed uh, kind of approved bank charters in the state between Caitlin Zavante uh, and then Kraken Financial, uh, we've actually got um, not only this policy win and this blueprint for other states and, and, and hopefully other nations to follow, but um, but also a significant de-risking of the crypto banking um, marketplace, which as late as kind of la late last year, early this year, um, was still predominantly centered around Silvergate, like a single institution that was banking, you know, 80% of the, the, the Western market, really. So um, seeing more of that uh, and, and seeing that get a little bit safer is important. Um, and uh, and I think that probably dovetails nicely into uh, into number five, which is uh, Brian Brooks. Yeah, I segue, segue made for yourself, Brian Brooks, let's do it. The reason this is a seg uh, good segue, not only was he the chief legal officer for, for Coinbase, uh, so he's, he's obviously an industry insider and knows what he's doing, but um, I'd say the OCC was the most friendly regulator uh, and the most clear um, regulator in terms of giving guidance for how crypto should be treated from uh, the banking sector. And uh, eliminating or, or at least significantly alleviating the risks associated with crypto enterprises ability to get banked um, has to be one of the most um, important milestones of the year. And, and some of this was due to the letters that he sent out, interpretive letters, um, that in, in some respects got him into trouble. <laughs> the, you know, first of all, he, um, he made it, uh, the, the OCC delivered guidance that uh, stablecoin issuers could be banked without issue. Um, and uh, second of all, he went further than that, and the, the commission went further than that in allowing uh, banks to actually do uh, custody of digital assets and, and cryptocurrencies as a business. So it kind of opens the door for this potential wave of M&A in 2021 for, for crypto custodians. Um, now, whether that sticks is anybody's guess. So I'm hoping that he's a, a prescient pick for 2021, but he was a Trump appointee and he did get a, uh, a nasty gram from some of the, the folks in Congress that thought that he was overstepping with his interpretive letters um, and that you know he had to basically wait for permission and their approval before he could say anything on the subject. So TBD, if a, a Democratic administration is uh, ultimately going to choose to replace him um, at the helm of the OCC, but I hope he stays where he is. Yeah, that's going to be a really interesting one. I think maybe we'll talk about this a little bit more in the context of your last section, sort of the, the end boss. Um, it has been fascinating to see two, two things that I've noticed uh, doing this show, you know, every day, kind of day in and day out since the summer. The first is that, you know, we all noticed when the OCC gave that guidance, but the OCC is a pretty under the radar kind of institution, right? Office of the Comptroller of the Currency is not like one of the three letter agencies that we, you know, talk about and think about. I have heard conversation after conversation, time after time, anyone who touches the institutional side of crypto discuss how big a deal it was that that guidance 
statements came out saying that banks could custody uh, and then later work with stablecoin issuers, but just kind of that was like the icing on the cake. So I thought that was really notable. The second is I do think that like there is uh, there's clear battle lines being drawn, you know, with the Stable Act and uh, and and Brooks on the other side. You know, it was the same people who published or or who have uh, who have introduced the Stable Act that sent him that <laughs> that nasty gram, as he put it, which is great. So it'll be fascinating to see if if those stay the the the, the actual battle lines or 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 not. I mean, I think you know one thing that's entirely possible to me is that we're a little bit overblowing this group of relatively uninfluential senators or sorry Congress people at this point as it relates to the Stable Act. But there's certainly going to be more conversation about this. Um, so I think it's, that's very well deserving of a top five slot. Um, number four, Balaji. Uh, obviously, one of the most uh, high profile, not just crypto, but kind of public intellectuals of the year. But why did he make the list in crypto for you? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the only reason he's not top is because he's he's more or less not really been in the industry this year, right? Like he's still he's still investing and and you know he, he's still you know working on some some very exciting projects. But um, he stepped back as CTO of Coinbase. He started the year; it looked like he was going to really go all in on on this um, uh, education and, and com crypto community platform, Nakamoto. And the coronavirus got away. He became you know one of the most vocal. Um, uh, analysts, uh, maybe, you know, citizen journalists, I guess, kind of sound an alarm early on in, in the, the coronavirus life cycle. And, and more importantly, all of its potential ramifications and, and, and uh, second and third order effects, many of which came to fruition. Um, in addition to that, I think um, he has been one of the most uh, vocally um, critical and, and, and basically just deaf uh, on, on mainstream media outlets in, in terms of uh, you know, their coverage of the coronavirus, but also um, the political bents uh, and, and generalist nature of, of mainstream media. So um, I think he touches on a few different areas where uh, crypto will either directly benefit, right? Like, like decentralized media or indirectly benefit, like with the coronavirus and, and the mere fact that COVID has pulled arguably all of tech forward by years, um, given the lockdowns. And then with the kind of unprecedented you know, uh, monetary stimulus, it certainly pulled forward Bitcoin as a, uh, as a macro narrative. So um, you can't talk about you know, 2020 without talking about coronavirus. And, and if you're going to talk about anyone within crypto that was influential there, um, it, he's just such an obvious pick that there's no one else that's even uh, it, it kind of in, the, in consideration. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that uh, Balaji will go down, I believe, as one of the least ignorable critics of some of these institutions. There's a lot of folks who are critiquing mainstream media who have like MSM tattooed across their network, right? Because it's a meme for them and it has been forever. I think Balaji is a little bit different uh, and has kind of proven that this year. I also think to your point, he's uh, to the extent that crypto has a person who's just trying to explain what a Bitcoin and crypto powered future society looks like, what the implications are. If you look second and third order effects, that's kind of where he's living, you know, and you see it. I mean, it's just every other thread, you know, every other day, it seems like every other week, at least is about uh, a vision of the world that seems kind of remarkably far off now, but we may find is is pretty prescient. So um, I, th I thought that was a great one. All right. Now we're in top three, the, the real, the real big game. Number three, Barry, Barry Silbert. Are you going to do the disclosure? 
we were on CoinDesk, right? <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, but DC, DCG owns uh, CoinDesk and half of the uh, rest of the crypto industry, certainly half of the supply of Bitcoin at this point. I will use this note to make clear, as I, I don't often do, but uh, the breakdown is a partnership with CoinDesk. It is completely editorially independent. I can say anything I want about Barry and they can't do anything about it. Uh, but I'm, I, I, I think like you, I've uh, been watching with, uh, with a lot of interest on the, the moves of, of Barry and Grayscale this year. So tell me about your, your thinking on the, on the number three. Well, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to take anything away from, um, from, from Grayscale. I, I think they've had a, a monster of a year. I think Genesis uh, has, has largely been the same. And the fact that they're affiliates that can feed off of each other has, has been a, a virtuous cycle. And of course, there's, there's a couple of new entities as well. But, but really, it's, it's, um, it's really all about the interplay between Genesis and its new lending business and its OTC relationships and, and kind of status as, as one of the leading prime brokers in the space. And then Grayscale. And um, a, a lot of Grayscale success really ties back to, to you know, seven years ago, the design decision of the trust itself and, and how it's ultimately going to come to market, um, knowing that it would be an uphill battle to get a Bitcoin ETF approved. They have essentially you know, benefited from this natural monopoly on the publicly quoted quasi ETF market. And uh, with the Grayscale trade, uh, been able to uh, rev up assets under management that, that really shows no signs of slowing down um, because of this uh, crazy arbitrage or, or lack of ability to, you know, um, to arbitrage the premium between Grayscale's publicly unrestricted shares and the private shares uh, that, that credit investors are able to create in this trust. And I go into the dynamics of the Grayscale trade, of course, in the um, uh, in, in the theses, but it's the industry's worst kept secret, and yet it persists because Grayscale has a, monop a natural monopoly uh, on, on this market until a Bitcoin ETF and other crypto ETFs are approved. And essentially, the way that works is an accredited investor can go create um, new shares through Grayscale, and then ultimately, through a six-month or 12-month holding period, those shares become unrestricted and then eligible for uh, trading on OTC markets for something called Rule 144. And it's it's a side door way to very slowly seed the market with shares of a quasi-Bitcoin ETF. But because you're very slowly introducing new supply into the market, there's been this persistent premium across the family of assets. And the surprising thing is that this has persisted for as long as it has. And um, the surprising thing is, is how large the uh, premium is. It's you know currently, I think, 30 plus percent for, for Bitcoin. It has been over 100% for Ethereum. Now maybe it's in the 50, 60% range. I haven't checked it today, um, but it's very, very high. And uh, if you're an institutional investor, you are going to make your first trade through Grayscale. And in many cases, you might make it through Genesis, apply leverage to that trade, and um, and essentially just clip coupons on the on the premium for in return for your six or, or 12 month holding period. So um, Grayscale gets paid. Uh, Genesis gets paid, and essentially the, the creators of the, these new shares get paid because of this SEC blessing from on uh, from on high that that uh, you can either argue as a stroke of brilliance or, or an accident of history. Either way, it is a is is going to go down in history for sure. This moment, uh, but I, I love that you have at number two. 
uh, the, the latest contender and competition for Grayscale's quasi-ETF dominance uh, in Michael Saylor and MicroStrategy. Obviously, the Michael Saylor MicroStrategy story is much bigger than that. But on a day uh, we're recording when we've been talking nonstop about whether Master is just the new ETF. So let's talk Saylor. Uh, you know, Saylor's on here just because of the um, the flair with which he he entered the industry. You know, I think Square's purchase of one percent of its balance sheet in Bitcoin is ultimately going to be much more impactful than MicroStrategy's you know half half a billion dollar bet. Um, but uh, Saylor gets credit because you know a he went all in. B it's a roundabout way of of uh, leveraging his position as a public company almost to create uh, a similar business to DCG in some respects. Um, yes, it's got a ton of uh, Bitcoin on the balance sheet, so it functions as a quasi-ETF. He's mentioned you know, maybe wanting to uh, spend resources on infrastructure businesses that, um, that, that you know, further cater to the Bitcoin economy. Um, but, uh, but, but really, I think just his boosterism uh, and kind of his, his embrace of memes has been uh, has been why he gets the nod on the list because I think it's more symbolic of of what's to come uh, in terms of big bets and um, whether that's a small allocation doesn't really matter small allocation big allocation big bets period from some of the largest companies in the world and then some of the largest central banks in the world uh, it's a sign of things to come and uh, he's simply the the most colorful char- uh, character to have, uh, have have really thrown down uh, a sizable position on this bet. Yep. I, I love it. I, I think he gets at a lot of the, the the epicenter of the narrative of Bitcoin as a macro asset in, in 2020 as well. All right. Number one, take us home. SBF. Uh, Sam uh, Bankman-Fried from FTX uh, is basically a, a hard fork of Binance uh, CZ <laughs> from last year, I guess. Um, the exchanges make all the money. They, they you know, uh, they, they either acquire uh, all the products, fund them, or uh, spin them up themselves. So whether you're talking about data, custody, derivatives, prediction markets, synthetic stocks, um, in, uh, in in FTX's case, um, they've got the affiliate market maker in, in, in Alameda. So they're also doing quite a bit of investing and in helping to bootstrap some DeFi applications like Serum, the DEX that was built on Solana. Um, they've been a supporter of Cream. They've been a supporter of SushiSwap. Uh, some of the forks of, of Compound and Uniswap, respectively. So, that, so uh, I called Sam every, uh, you know, the kid in, in every page of the yearbook uh, <laughs> this year. And um, and to, to put a bow on top, he was also the second largest private donor um, to the Biden campaign behind Michael Bloomberg. So that seems like a high ROI investment to have made to at least uh, have an audience somewhere in the White House, uh, maybe not with the president himself, but... Um, uh, someone, someone on the staff for sure, and hopefully we can, you know, use that to our advantage. And and he's able to uh, make sure that the worst impulses of, of some members of Congress and and government don't uh, don't come pouring down on the industry. Love it. So, I, like I said, I thought that this would be a, the the top ten uh, people would be a really good way to get at some of the themes. But there's obviously that's only the first ten pages of 120, right? Maybe even less. And so, what I want to do now is go through a few of the other sections and pull out just kind of a couple nuggets from uh, not even all ten themes, but a few of the different themes that I'd love to get kind of uh, more of your take on. 
So let's start. Uh, actually, I want to almost start with a, a narrative or a trend that you're following, kind of this blue chips, real versus relative value. But I almost want to bring it together with Bitcoin and Ethereum. I mean, one of the things that was really notable to me in this presentation is it feels impossible to me to read your section about Bitcoin and your section about Ethereum and view them as somehow this competing set of assets, the way that the narrative was in 2017, 2018, right? It feels like part of what you're recognizing, putting them right up front. I mean, I guess let me ask it as a question. Do you think the conversation has finally bifurcated as uh, between these two you know, sections of the industry? I mean, obviously they're related to one another and they're interconnected in many ways, but have we finally reached kind of a maturity where they're just playing different functions for the people who are engaged with them? I think the entire market is going to grow so big that it doesn't matter. And the folks that tend to argue over the, you know, the definitions are, are maybe the least interesting people in, in the entire industry. Um, you know, like Bitcoin is going to be successful um, regardless of how Ethereum does and maybe vice versa. Um, I'd say, you know, Bitcoin, that's definitely true. Ethereum, the protocol, it's definitely true. Ethereum, the asset, you know, would would probably suck some serious wind if um, if Bitcoin, the asset, you know, uh, underperformed for whatever reason. But um, you know, Bitcoin is asset first. Uh, Ethereum is platform first. Um, so you know, I've, I've always thought of Bitcoin as um, an asset centric network that uses novel technology to move the asset around and and actually secure the asset. With Ethereum, it's it's a novel set of protocols where the asset is used to secure the protocols. It's, it's you know, completely the inverse. And um, I, I think people would do better to bucket uh, the industry by sector um, and actual function versus just thinking of like the straight like market cap rankings. Bitcoin and Ethereum are kind of the clearest encapsulations of this, but um, you could look at Bitcoin versus other cryptocurrencies. It's got a 95% arguably market share. Uh, the next closest being, you know, probably Litecoin and then Bitcoin Cash, and then all the other also runs underneath. With Ethereum, um, you're going to have things like Polkadot and Cosmos and Algorand and other uh, platforms that uh, are ultimately serving similar utility as, as Ethereum up top. But um, you know, at the end of the day, you're 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 talking about crypto protocols that are essentially powering the back end of decentralized finance. Much more complexity. Um, much more uh, surface area and, and kind of room for innovation and, and, and new applications in the crypto protocols versus the asset-centric protocol of Bitcoin. So they both do well. Um, they might do well on different timelines. I think people will um, conflate them for a while, mostly because I think the price of Ethereum drafts off of Bitcoin to a large extent, um, maybe more extreme moves, but it still drafts off of Bitcoin. And um, you know, everything else you can kind of further segment down, you know, below that. DeFi is only a $7 billion asset class, if you will, right now, insanely small. Um, stable coins went from about 5 billion uh, in, in total supply to about 26, 27 now uh, since, uh, since the beginning of the year. So uh, if you start to go, you know, kind of sector by sector and, and, and think about these things, apples to apples, um, I think discerning investors and anyone that knows any better in the industry not really talking about Bitcoin and Ethereum in the same sentence, unless it's to say, if you want exposure to crypto, you should probably own both. This episode is brought to you by Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place and earn up to 8.5% per year on your Bitcoin. 
Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly on all purchases. Reserve yours in the Crypto.com app today. Many investors want to be a part of the next bull run. Others seek to build their dream home, finally launch that startup, or fund their education. Try Nexo's instant crypto credit lines and borrow against any major cryptocurrency with no minimum or maximum withdrawal amounts, no fees whatsoever, no credit checks, and flexible repayment. Not to mention the APR starts at just 5.9%. Stay on top of your investment game with Nexo.io. And remember, it's your crypto, your credit, your choice. Get started at Nexo.io. Hey guys, I'm excited to share that this week we have a special product launch sponsor. Level is a revolutionary new Bitcoin exchange with no trading fees and no hidden spreads. With the free Level mobile app, you can trade Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ether, hodl your coins in a secure multi-signature wallet, and spend cash from your crypto with a debit card. Level checking accounts are FDIC insured up to $250,000. And Coindesk has partnered with the new exchange to give our listeners a free month of premium service. So when you sign up, use the promo code Coindesk or just visit level.co slash Coindesk. That's lvl.co slash Coindesk to get started today. Let's actually dive a little bit deeper into some of your individual analyses with that setup. Um, So on the Bitcoin front, again, there's... Each, I want to really stress for anyone who's listening to this, there's 10 pages on each of these things. I'm pulling out a couple tiny nuggets each that I think are particularly interesting or, you know, uh, something that I wanted to talk more with you about. Um, let's talk about the observation around demand being greater than supply for uh, for crypto, for, for Bitcoin specifically, just with a, a troika of actors, right? Square, Grayscale, PayPal. What, what's your observation? What's notable about it? Well, I think if you look since um, since the halving uh, earlier this year, the amount of Bitcoin that's been purchased uh, and, and kind of hoovered up into the Grayscale Trust uh, by PayPal, by Square, um, just those actors alone uh, exceeds the mined rewards that have actually hit the market, which means we essentially don't have any unspoken for Bitcoin left in terms of net new demand. Um, that's hitting the market, and you know, in a recessionary environment, maybe that would change, and uh, and the flows would would slow, um, and you know, other folks would be you know acquiring those those Bitcoin from uh, from the miners. But um, it's I think an important you know, mental framing just to understand that essentially Bitcoin's fixed supply has already come into place, and now we're just talking about transfers from existing holders to new holders. Uh, and that's a really powerful framing versus the early days. Let's let's think about the first cycle of Bitcoin. In um, 2012, uh, at the first halving, 50% of the outstanding Bitcoin supply still had to be mined, right? So in the first Bitcoin bubble in, in 2013, you still had um, annual inflation in the in the double digits, right? In the last cycle, it was still in the four to five percent range. Now it's for the first time ever, it's below two percent. Uh, which is lower than the target rate of inflation, and, and it's closing in on, on the annual you know, issuance increase in gold. Um, that hardens the kind of narrative appeal for, for macro investors. And also it ensures that um, you essentially only have Bitcoin holders selling to non-holders today versus new seniorage. Um, I, 
I ultimately don't think that the halving really mattered. But when you look at those numbers and the dynamic of the inflows and the fact that basically there's no more Bitcoin to go around, but from what you can pry from my cold dead hands, right? Um, I think that is uh, that's incredibly powerful uh, framing. And ultimately, you know, you're going to see a lot of people that have have been in the industry for five, ten years. They might have a certain portion of Bitcoin that they are just never going to sell. So the question is, how much is actually available? Um, that uh, and and how much of a uh, a, a magnitude of um, a rally could a dollar of inflow from an institutional investor actually drive at scale uh, if, uh, if, if it's going to take quite a bit to actually get some of the early holders to, to part with their Bitcoin. And their asks in the order book might be at the $50,000, $100,000 range for Bitcoin. Yeah, it's interesting because you kind of expand this into obviously the whole micro strategy corporate treasury creates another potential category in this demand. But then you also have a really interesting prediction, which is something I've thought about a lot. You said basically, uh, you think that there will be a micro strategy esque move into Bitcoin by at least one small central bank in 2021. Why not? You know, I, I mean, uh, we've got unprecedented uh, monetary expansion worldwide. Uh, purchasing power is going down by definition. Uh, you've seen insane global stock market rallies and, and, and basically every hard asset or financial asset that's, uh, that you can think of is, is appreciated in value um, in one of the uh, most challenging years on record. Um, and if you are the US and you have the dollar, or if you're somewhere in Europe and you have the euro, you're going to be able to um, maybe sustain that level of, of quantitative easing and, and debt monetization. If you are a smaller country, um, you are going to have a, a much harder time actually sustaining that. So why not take a flyer and purchase a hard asset that you know you might be able to print your worthless money and uh, and still end up net ahead if you're using it to acquire hard reserves. Whether that's I think historically that would have been gold. And at the end of last year, we were already seeing record inflows in gold. Now you're talking about a, uh, an inflow into digital gold, potentially, where it's much, much higher beta. So not only can you protect yourself from inflationary environments, but now you've also kind of got this warrant attached to it, this, this you know, lottery ticket attached to it, where because Bitcoin is very high beta, if, uh, if it does turn out to be um, a, a leading performer in, in terms of appreciation in 2021 and beyond, now you're net ahead. Of where you were even before uh, this uh, this setback, if if you were a, a central bank experiencing some uh, some challenges. You also have, I think, uh, you know, just shifting and potential potentially new levels of desperation around certain fiat regimes. I mean, one notable one that I've been watching throughout the year is Lebanon. Lebanon's fall from grace as the banker of the entire region in the Middle East to a country that is experiencing just chaos in terms of the value of the Lebanese pound, which broke its peg last year uh, and has continued to flounder this year. I mean, they're now talking about uh, central bank digital currencies. They're they're headed that direction in terms of trying to restore some sort of confidence uh, as opposed to Bitcoin. But it's not hard to see how uh, a government dealing with this sort of issue comes to a different conclusion or just quietly starts to do this. So I, I think it's a, I'm interested to see uh, 
I think that when the floodgate of that opens, you could see a lot of different smaller players start to look to that as an option. Um, a couple, two, two more kind of uh, battlegrounds from Bitcoin, and then and then we'll move on. One that I think is is notable and maybe gets at sort of the last part uh, of your piece as well. The end boss is this. The battle for the preservation of the ability to self-custody and private transactions, it seems like that's something that you see clearly kind of increasing over the course of the next year. But then the second is one that I want to ask you about as well, and we can talk about them together, which is kind of uh, a, a geopolitical intrigue around Bitcoin mining. Uh, it's been interesting to me to see there's there's a, a, a new narrative strand or a narrative strand that I'm seeing around uh a recognition that China's uh, Bitcoin mining is not something that should make us write off Bitcoin. It's something that should make us reinvest or focus more on our Bitcoin mining strategy. Is that how you see, how do you see that playing out too? So you kind of these two new battlegrounds or, or I guess uh, more important battlegrounds in the year to come. Um, honestly, I, I don't know how, how it plays out. And I haven't fully wrapped my head around where the focus is going to be from a, a policymaking standpoint. I, I'd imagine that from everything that we've seen from a rhetoric standpoint out of uh, the, the Democrats in Congress and, and potentially the Biden administration, the concern um, is probably going to be more around self-custody, private transactions, and the... Um, uh, general circumvention of, of the U.S. dollar, if anything, right? Um, I think it's going to be, yes, you'll have like the Green New Deal folks harping on about the energy inefficiency of, of, of Bitcoin mining in particular. But I think the catch-all uh, critiques of Bitcoin, of Ethereum, and for every other asset, including the ones that are not proof-of-work based, I, I, I think the challenges that are going to be uh, ahead of the industry mining probably maybe breaks the top five barely, but it might even be outside of the top five. Um, now, the mining narrative that, that does matter and that, that is worrisome is the rise of mining capacity in Iran, not necessarily China, um, but Iran in particular, where that uh, is a factor, not because it's mining per se, but again, it goes back to circumvention of uh you know, sanctions and, 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 and money laundering provisions, et cetera, because now the Iranians are going to be using Bitcoin to, to you know, basically evade U.S. sanctions and, and basically get around the teeth of, of what we've applied to them. So um, I think, uh, you know, it, it probably all ties back, as it always does, to the Patriot Act and, um, and, and you know, the Bank Secrecy Act and, and all that. But um, it doesn't help that the majority of mining capacity is also behind the Great Wall, uh, the Great Firewall, um, because it is unclear whether whether China and, and the CCP, you know, by by extension, is, is going to uh, allow those mines to operate or, or, or if they will continue to condone, uh, to condone crypto activity uh, within the mainland and, and potentially Hong Kong and, and Taiwan and, and some of the other affiliated territories as well. So I think... Um, you know, it, it's it's a net positive that Bitcoin mining is getting less opaque, but that's really only to get institutional investors comfortable with it. Um, I don't really think it matters from a policy standpoint um, quite so much as 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 it might from uh, maybe demystifying the asset for for some of the other big newcomers. 
Super interesting. Yeah, I I, we, I had this conversation with uh, Max and Stacy uh, earlier, um, where I was doing a, a kind of end of year show that'll come probably in a couple of weeks. But we were talking about that exact exact thing with Iran. All right, I have uh, one question each for three additional sections: uh, ETH, DeFi, and stablecoins. So, ETH question. Uh, I guess actually two, sorry, two on ETH. So uh, the last time we did a show together, actually, one of the things that we talked about was the ETH is money meme, which was just starting to circulate. You go into depth about 10 reasons ETH is not money. So give me your updated take on the ETH is money meme. ETH is not money now, but it could be, I guess, is, is you know, that was the same thing as last year uh, when we had that conversation. Um, I think it's a great meme and it's gotten people excited about, you know, holding ETH. And, and obviously there's a lot of developer activity and, and, and useful applications built on Ethereum. But um, predominantly that, that's become a, a bit of a meme because uh, Ethereum was just first, right? It was the first uh, form of collateral that could be used in DeFi applications. It was the first form of collateral that could be used to borrow against in order to create DAI, which is the first kind of on-chain stable coin that was fully decentralized or, or more decentralized, I guess, than, than something like Tether. Um, but what we've seen this year is we've seen uh, ERC-20s, uh, particularly the, the ERC-20 stable coins like USDC and Tether, uh, eclipse Ether in terms of their utility in, in different transactions. Uh, so, you know, trillion dollars worth of, of process transactions. The majority is is not ether at this point. It's actually stable coins, um, and that's fine. But it goes to show, as you would expect, people do not want to borrow against volatile assets. They don't want to lend volatile assets out either, um, and they don't want to necessarily lock it in collateral for. Uh, making markets either. They want to do that in some kind of stable currency and then take the um, take the risk uh, on on their you know personal or, or corporate balance sheet for the assets that have upside. That doesn't necessarily mean that that ETH should be treated as, as money per se. And I think it is light years behind Bitcoin in terms of that narrative. Um, what I argue instead is that it's perfectly acceptable for Ethereum would be the collateral asset that's required to secure this multi-trillion dollar decentralized finance application ecosystem. And there will have to be some minimum amount of security spend in order to ensure that that network maintains its robustness and, and ultimately transactions are processed securely over time. So um, my sense is uh, that's a perfectly fine position to be in. And Ethereum will, will struggle to maintain the narrative that ETH is money because there are going to be so many other layer one platforms that are vying for the same markets that, that Ethereum is, is typically dominated in because they've come live this year. So we've seen Avalanche, Solana, Near, um, uh, Polkadot being maybe the biggest one. I, I was yelled at earlier because it's it's a layer zero blockchain that connects parachains, blah, blah, blah. Right? That basically, <laughs> if you're not Ethereum, and you're processing complex transactions using the logic that's been created by, by these different developer communities, it's a layer one protocol, right? Like yeah. <laughs> you're trying to power decentralized applications, you know, and, and, and I think that competitive set is much, much more diverse. Uh, and it's less clear that Ethereum runs away with that market than it is for Bitcoin, where Bitcoin is, uh, what is Litecoin now? I, I don't even know because I don't look at it. It is uh, now 70 times larger um, than, uh, than Litecoin, which is the next closest proof of work currency. 
night and day, right? Uh, between what you'd see there versus what you see between Ethereum and Polkadots and Cardano and, and some of the other layer ones. Um, so I think uh, I think that's important. And and again, ultimately, it doesn't. I don't think it matters, but um, it's it's something that I'll probably get yelled at for. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's talk DeFi for a second. So one of the big things that happened, obviously, with the summer when there was a huge race up in the total value locked in the space, and the interest is the comparisons to the ICO boom, right? And of course, you know, we have Bitcoin parallelism in terms of 2017 to now in terms of price and yada, yada, yada. But, you know, you kind of alluded to this a little bit before in our conversation about some of the uh, protocol developers, but how do you see the summer moment and the rise of DeFi as compared to the ICO boom? Was it an ICO boom moment or were they just kind of fundamentally different phenomena? Uh, I, I think there was a lot of similarities, but you know, we, we tend to forget that in the early stages of the ICO boom, you had um, projects like Cosmos uh, get launched and like in the very, very kind of earliest stages. Um, so the teams that, that stuck around and built, you know, by and large have, have, have done very well in, in, in kind of the second, you know, resurgence here. The ICO euphoria that was crazy was when, you know, Denticoin was getting bit up into the billion dollar range and, and some of the other, you know, uh, uh, cryptocurrency for, you know, insert whatever your field is, uh, was, was, you know, really getting hot and people were investing in white papers. The DeFi boom is a little bit different because um, you had to be much more technical to actually participate in it. And it was so there, in some respects, a, a layer of protection against you know, the excess of 2017. And um, it was arguably somewhat obvious which protocols were going to emerge as blue chips. So it's almost like the industry learned its lesson. I remember 2017 everything was so new and novel. And there was all these crazy ideas about kind of the future of, of tokens and, and kind of the explosion and proliferation of, of this new type of um, economic model that uh, for a layperson is very tough to figure out like which, what was up, what was down. With, uh, with DeFi tokens, you first of all had to be more specialized to access the first run. And second of all, you could probably use common sense and say this project was launched by an anonymous developer two days ago, and it's a carbon copy and fork of a more established project. Maybe this is interesting, but 99% probably not, um, unless there are other kind of like, you know, uh, early, you know, technical enthusiasts that are kind of calling out strengths and, and, and weaknesses. But um, you you had the concept of, of DeFi blue chips emerge, and that became especially pronounced in uh, this resurgence with Wi-Fi, Aave, Compound, uh, Uniswap and 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 I call them the uneasies, um, which you know others in the industry have called the, um, the the DeFi blue chips. Everything else, you know, who cares? Uh, and, but I don't think we saw any similar resurgence of uh, ICO assets in um, in 2017. That's a big difference. Uh, so so you know the tulip bubble happened once, so to speak. Uh, this looks like it might have a little bit more staying power. Got it. Uh, yeah, I think I think a, a lot of uh, your sense of this relates or resonates with me. I think the uh, 
I've, I've felt throughout the year that as much as that community was hungry for a bigger stage to play around, the natural barriers to entry have been really, really valuable for allowing these experiments to take place, even kind of crazy, vicious capitalist experiments to place with very little collateral damage other than, I mean, it was all in franchise users who knew what they were getting into, right? Um, all right, one more section, and then I have a kind of a, a wrap-up question, I guess. Stable coins, basically unignorable this year, grew from $4.8 billion in total circulation to over $20 billion in total circulation. One of the things that it feels like from your stablecoin section is that it's almost like you are watching the relative balance of power of different types of stablecoins and different stablecoin issuers relative to one another. Is that a big theme, you know, or is there something else about stablecoins that you're paying more attention to? Um, as long as something is, is in a bank account as the collateral asset, it's a little bit concerning because bank accounts have a way of getting seized. Um, and the stable coin economy right now is, is more or less completely reliant on Tether and uh, the team's ability to play this regulatory and banking shell game internationally at, at, at very, very high stakes. And they've not always been successful, right? You know, the, the thing that has gotten them in hot water and Bifinex in hot water with the New York State Attorney General has been uh, this concept of, of kind of commingling funds in order to make up for the shortfall that they had due to an account seizure a couple of years ago um, of uh, dollar deposits that were backing Tether. So like that's not even unprecedented. Like it like it's it's already happened before and, and arguably as the assets under management and, and dollar deposits have gotten bigger, um, that risk only gets more pronounced. So um, Tether is, uh, I think, 70, 75% um, of uh, 76% of, uh, if you go to Masari.io. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the next, you know, kind of runner up is, is USDC. And, and that is a, I guess, much more trustworthy business, you know, run by, you know, Coinbase and Circle, Circle primarily uh, kind of leading the charge on, on that front um, in, uh, in recent years. But you saw the same issue where the dollar deposits are, are sitting in regulated U.S. financial institutions and, uh, and ultimately, you know, getting tokenized and, and traded around. So could you uh, create like a, a blacklist, whitelist system with, with something like USDC? Absolutely. And then there's DAI, which has its flaws in terms of how it's actually created and, and how easy it is to, to preserve the DAI peg. Uh, so none of these assets are perfect, but... Um, until there is something that's battle tested and, and looks like it can scale and is not necessarily uh, subject to seizure, uh, you'd at least want to see balance here. Because if the industry is too reliant on Tether, or too reliant on USDC or DAI, and there is some um, unwinding uh, or, or catastrophic failure, then it, it potentially jeopardizes many of the applications upon which you know uh, those those um, uh, those currencies are necessary uh, inputs. At least if uh, the group of them grow together and, and you have kind of an even split between the different type of stable coins available and used, uh, then it becomes much easier um, in the case of a shutdown or some adverse action to just migrate liquidity from one asset to the other. You might have temporary issues um, with, uh, with applications that are, are relying too heavily on one particular type of stable coin, but at least the risk is spread out and it's not systemic.
talk about stable coins for far longer than we have time for, but I, I want to do kind of a wrap up question. Uh, you know, I, I was going to ask about NFTs and exchange unbundling and so many other great stuff in here, but I thought maybe just to kind of round us out, you've now done these formally for at least three years and informally for a lot longer, right? These big comprehensive sets of theses where you take the time to review, what surprised you that made it to this list this year? Something that if you had zoomed back a year, you never would have expected to be such an important theme for 2020. And what's something that its absence surprised you? Something that would have seemed like such an important thing or, or such a high potential thing moving into this year that ended up being much less relevant or too early? Um, I think uh, Lightning and, and some of kind of the, the, the Bitcoin development um, I like, I just don't see anything getting developed on Bitcoin. I, you know, again, that's a, that's a comment that'll get me in a lot of trouble, I'm sure. But um, like you have almost a trillion dollars in value getting moved on Ethereum and, and a good chunk of that taking the form of uh, ERC-20 stable coins. Lightning, you know, it's got like something like $20 million of, of channel capacity still. And we're we're kind of a few years into this uh, experiment with uh, with with you know uh, lightning payments on the Bitcoin network, um, sidechain same thing. So the uh, the extensions of Bitcoin uh, have been underwhelming to say the least. And I was more optimistic about them in the past. I am uh, you know I'm not even pessimistic about them. I'm just completely apathetic because I think they don't matter um, at this point. And and so of course my my sense is that thinking will mean that they're going to absolutely explode this year and I'll be proven wrong again. <laughs> um, but uh, I just, I don't think that they, that they really matter now because of, of what's been happening on Ethereum. Um, so that's one thing that, that I think uh, is surprising versus my, my priors. The other thing that was a really, really, um, uh, it was a shocker for me was the staying power of some of these venture backed um, smart contract platforms and and the fact that they did not end up becoming markdowns for these funds. You saw an explosion of uh, layer one token networks this year. And it remains to be seen whether you know they'll ultimately separate next year and have their comeuppance or, or, or whether a number of them will ultimately succeed. But I would never have guessed that uh, something is heavily funded as um, as Polkadot, Avalanche, uh, you know all these other you know uh, quote unquote professor coins uh, in some cases uh, that raise gobs of money would have um, would have launched at a price that would have made those initial investments justified, and it seems that you know by and large most of them are are not only above water but but arguably doing well and, and making significant strides. So. Um, I'd say that goes to uh, much like Ethereum drafts off of Bitcoin. That's probably to a certain extent those other layer ones drafting off of Ethereum, uh, and in particular this very tricky migration that the Ethereum community is going to have from from ETH one to ETH two. So that presents an opening. And if you believe the headline number is sixty five billion dollar market cap for Ethereum, and you know Ether is seventy five percent of that market right now, well, there's a reason the other twenty five percent has has kind of latched on to these other. Um, potential complements or substitutes for Ethereum, um, depending on how 2021 and beyond shake out. Ryan, as always, uh, this is super work. Really, really fun to talk to you about it. Uh, you, you just dropped 130 pages. I think you have earned your right to shill Masari for uh, a couple minutes to, to close us out. Uh, 
love the update, but tell us what's been happening. What was the 2020 for the, for the, uh, for the Bloomberg of crypto and, and what's to come next year? Masari is the greatest company in the history of the industry. And um, <laughs> this is the most fun uh, I've, I've had uh, at work in a long time. And, you know, we, you know, we were early on the coronavirus stuff too. So, so we've been working remotely for 10 months uh, and the culture is still, uh, has still really kept clicking. Um, I'm looking forward to being able to get everybody back uh, to, you know, quote unquote normal. I don't think we're going to return to uh, to work as we were, but um, but we're we're just going to redeploy that office budget into maybe semi-annual vacations where we get everybody together. So it'll be it'll be nice. We are recruiting like mad on both the analyst and the um, uh, and the developer front. But one of the reasons we're recruiting so much is because we have built an interface for professionals to access any type of qualitative quantitative information uh, in the industry. We cover hundreds of assets uh, by sector by metric. Um, and uh, we also have an Intel product that is essentially uh, a corporate actions calendar for uh, the top 100 assets by market cap. Uh, we work with some of the top exchanges, custodians, venture funds, um, and, uh, and otherwise uh, infrastructure companies, uh, not just in the US, but, but across the globe on that product, plus uh, 100 different projects that have, have worked with us on our disclosures registry. So we've built this really robust information marketplace, and, um, and now, the new and improved Masari.io front page has, uh, has very much got a, a power user look and feel to it as if it is a Bloomberg terminal. But we've got, uh, we've got another decade to go before we catch up to, uh, to Uncle Mike um, at, uh, at Bloomberg. We'll get there, though. Love it. All right. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for hanging out tonight. Uh, I encourage everyone to go read the full report or at least skim it, uh, and, uh, and you won't be disappointed. Thanks, as always, for hanging out, Ryan, and uh, I can't wait to have you back. Buy Bitcoin. As I mentioned at the top of the show and throughout the conversation with Ryan, there is way more in this 130 plus page document that we could fit into a podcast. I wanted to call out, however, the one thing that I think I would have added if I were in Ryan's shoes, which is more analysis of the role of central bank digital currencies in what the policy response to cryptocurrencies might be. There is a section around the stablecoin part of this report where Ryan explicitly explains why they don't track CBDCs. And effectively, what it comes down to is the fact that they are simply not cryptocurrencies, and they are absolutely correct in that fact. However, I think that in the context of the policy environment and what we're likely to see in the year to come, you can't not talk about CBDCs because they are going to dictate the response of policymakers to many of these forces. By way of example, I have seen numerous tweets in which Rohan Gray, the academic architect of the Stable Act, which was just introduced in Congress, discussing why the need for this act came in part because the Fed hasn't done its own digital currency. When you see something like the response of China to the Libra stablecoin introduction a year ago, it's just hard for me to fully separate those things, even though it is important to distinguish between these private, non-sovereign cryptocurrencies, and digital currencies, which are really just a digital surveillance fiat in many ways. Still, this is tiny quibbles, and I was just really looking for one thing that I thought we could potentially add to the conversation of this really comprehensive and large document. Go check it out. I'll make sure there's a link to download this in the show notes. But for now, I appreciate you listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Until tomorrow, guys, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.